Good morning. Philippians 4, 10 through 20. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. The word of the Lord. Am I good? There I go. Have you ever thought about how disappointing life is sometimes? On the one hand, uh, there are all kinds of things that we desire but never receive. Even if you believe in God, these might be things that you've prayed for your entire life, but you never got them, and that's disappointing. On the other hand, um, what happens when we do get that thing we thought we really needed, that thing we thought we really wanted? Have you ever thought about how it just always seems to fall short? Like you thought, oh, if I could only get this or if I could only get that, and you do get that thing, have you ever noticed how not only does it not satisfy that ache in your soul, but in some ways it makes the ache even worse? Has that ever happened to you? One of the best recent illustrations of this is the uh, Pixar movie called Soul from a few years ago. Um, It's about a character named Joe Gardner. Jamie Foxx plays this jazz musician named Joe Gardner. Joe Gardner, the only thing he's ever wanted, the only thing he's ever dreamed about is to play jazz with the best. Instead, Joe Gardner teaches high school band. And it's not even a good band. And yet, one day, Joe gets a phone call to play a gig with a famous jazz musician named Dorothea Williams. It's his dream come true, but before he can get to the gig, he falls down an open manhole cover and dies. And the whole rest of the movie is all about Joe's obsession to get back, play the gig, and find the contentment that comes from fulfilling his dream. And at the end of the movie, he does. He comes back, and he plays the gig. And it's not just any gig. It's one of those rare nights when the musicians aren't just making music, they're making magic. And after the gig, Joe's standing out on the street in front of the club, reveling in what just happened. And Dorothea comes outside, and they have a conversation. Joe says, so, what happens next? Dorothea says, we come back tomorrow night and do it all again. And Joe gets this troubled, confused, disappointed look on his face. 
So Dorothea looks at him and she says, what's wrong? He says, it's just that all my life, I've been waiting on this day for my entire life. I thought this would feel different. Dorothea looks at him and says, I heard this story about a fish. This young fish swims up to an older fish and says, I'm looking for this thing they call the ocean. The ocean, says the older fish. That's what you're in right now. This, says the younger fish, this is water. What I want is the ocean. Have you ever gone looking for the ocean only to discover it's only water? How do we manage the inevitable disappointment of living in this world? Is it even possible to find the contentment we're always looking for? We're finishing a series today on the Apostle Paul's letter to the Philippians. In this passage, Paul tells us that he has found the secret of contentment. Do you want to know what it is? Let's take a look at this passage and learn three things. Paul shows us the need for contentment, the secret of contentment, and the fruit of contentment. The need, secret, and the fruit of contentment, okay? First, let's take a look at the need for contentment. And remember the backstory here. Paul is in a Roman jail for preaching the gospel. He's facing execution, and the Philippians heard about this, so they sent Paul some money because Roman jails don't feed you. If you want to eat, you have to pay for it yourself. So one of the main reasons Paul is writing this letter is to thank the Philippians for their generosity. So notice what he says. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. In other words, um, for whatever reason, the Philippians were unable to support Paul for a season, but now they found a way to start helping him again. So Paul is just saying, thank you. But what he says next is remarkable. He says, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Now, Paul, he's in jail. Paul has profound material needs at this time. And yet, Paul is saying that he has something in his soul, something that sustains him, regardless of all the other things that are going on in his life. Now, this would be amazing even if the only thing Paul was talking about here was those times in life when we have to go without. You have a need that isn't being provided. You have a desire that is not going fulfilled. That's hard. But Paul is also talking about all those times in life when you get the thing that you thought was going to fix everything, but not only does it not satisfy that ache in your soul, it makes it even worse. You, you went looking for the ocean only to discover that it's only water. So notice how Paul puts it in the letter, because that's what he's talking about. He says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Friends, here's why this is so important for us. Think about all the things in this world that we set our hearts on. If we don't get them, it's easy to fall into despair. Maybe you were hoping for that big career break or that life-changing romantic relationship or that financial windfall, or that spiritual breakthrough, whatever it might be, when we don't get those things, we can fall into despair. But on the flip side, 
What happens when we do get the thing that we thought was going to fix everything and it doesn't? What happens then is it's so easy for us to be crushed by disappointment. One of the biggest challenges in this world is finding a way to be empty, but without despair, but also to be full, but without disappointment. Does that make sense? Let me repeat that. One of the biggest challenges in this world is to find a way to be empty, to go without, to not get the things we think we need, but without falling into despair, but also a way to be full, to enjoy the things of this world, and yet without being crushed by disappointment, by the inevitable reality that those things can never satisfy the deepest needs of our heart. Finding a way to do all of that. There have been many approaches throughout history, ways of dealing with this dilemma. Let me mention two of the biggest. One of the most common strategies for dealing with this is detachment. Detachment says that this world is temporary, everything in this world is temporary, so don't set your heart on things that are temporary. You see this approach in Buddhism, you see it in the ancient Greek philosophy of Stoicism. So for instance, here's a, uh, the uh, ancient philosopher Epictetus, he was a famous Stoic philosopher. Um, Epictetus once said that when you kiss your child goodnight, you should whisper to yourself, tomorrow you will die. The detachment says, don't set your heart on things that are temporary. Practice detachment from the world. Another one of the most common strategies is the, what we could call the live for today approach. The live for today approach says that you know, everything in this world is coming to an end. When you die, it's just lights out. There is no bigger story. There is no deeper meaning. Don't go looking for those things. And if that's the case, what we should do is, is simply enjoy the things of this world today because that's all we have. So for instance, I read an interview last year with a cognitive scientist named Lori Santos. Lori Santos uh, teaches a class at Yale University called Psychology and the Good Life. She's known as the happiness professor and her class is one of the most popular classes on campus, especially among students with rising rates of anxiety. According to her research, um, she says the purpose of life is not to get good grades so you can get a high-paying job, so that you can get all the accolades in life. And so as a result of this, her students will ask her, and in fact, the interviewer also asked her, okay, oh happiness professor, what is the purpose of life? And Lori Santos says, it's smelling your coffee in the morning, loving your kids, having sex and daisies and springtime. It's all the good things in life. That's what it is. Now listen, Lori Santos isn't here. We can't have a dialogue with her about this. But it sounds like she's saying the real purpose of life is simply to enjoy the, the, the things of this world today because right now that's all we have. There is no deeper story. There is no bigger meaning. Don't go looking for those things because it doesn't exist. Now here's the thing, if this world really is temporary, or if it really is just meaningless, then each of these approaches has its own internal logic. Each of them, they make sense within their own worldview. But here's what I want us to notice. If we go the detachment route, you know, just don't set your heart on things that are temporary, then basically what we're doing is trying to tamp down our desires. Detachment says, don't feel your desires too much. But if we go the live for today route, 
you know, in, enjoy the things of this world because that's all we have, then what we're trying to do is not think about our disappointment too much. In each of these responses, either we're trying not to feel our desires too much or not to think about the inevitable disappointment of life too much. In other words, the way to really deal with the disappointment of life is either to be less emotional or less rational. But either way, it means being less human. Friends, Paul has found something different. Do you see the incredible balance now that Paul is expressing here? When Paul says, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound, he's saying, I know how to be empty, but without falling into despair. And I also know how to enjoy all the things of this world, yet without being seduced into thinking that those things are going to fix the ache in my soul and then crushed by disappointment when they don't. Paul knows how to do all of that. Friends, we need what Paul has. And what Paul has is contentment. Where do we find it? Well, that leads to our next point. We've just seen the need for contentment. But next, Paul shows us the secret of contentment. Remember, Paul says this. He says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And when Paul says that, like we're all on the edge of our seats. Okay, Paul, tell us the secret. What's the secret? Paul says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The secret is I can do all things through him. That's Christ who strengthens me. The secret of true contentment is Jesus. And yes, I know that's the Sunday school answer. But I also want us to see how counterintuitive and how countercultural this is. And in two big ways. First, this verse is not a promise of constant worldly success, victory, and triumph. And I know that's easy for us to hear it that way. Many of us are familiar with this verse. If you've ever gone to a marathon, it seems like every other sign says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And so we hear that, and the image we have is crossing the finish line in victory. We hear this verse, and we think it's talking about worldly success and achieving our goals and fulfilling our dreams. But that's not what Paul is saying. But with, what we're doing is we're taking what Paul is saying and we're interpreting it through the grid of our modern American prosperity gospel of triumph and success. But when Paul says, I can do all things, he's not saying he always succeeds. Paul is saying, I can do failure. I can do defeat. I can, I can do jail. I can face execution through Christ who strengthens me. It's not a promise of worldly success or achieving our dreams or finding that ocean. It's a promise that we can go through failure and defeat and not be crushed by those things. Do you see that? In fact, um, you know, Jesus is our model for this. You know, no one ever lived a life filled with more pain, suffering, failure, and defeat than Jesus. And I'll tell you what, our world doesn't know what to do with this. We don't know what to do with the crucified Jesus. It's easy for us to think of Jesus as a great spiritual leader or a great teacher, but we don't know what to do with the crucified Jesus. In fact, many of the most popular spiritual approaches in the world today don't know what to do with the crucified Jesus. For instance, Thich Nhat Hanh is a famous, or was a famous Buddhist monk, uh, author, and activist. He's widely renowned as being the person who introduced mindfulness meditation to the modern West. In a book he wrote called Going Home, he said this, 
The image of Jesus on the cross is a very painful image for me. It does not convey joy or peace, and this does not do justice to Jesus. Most ways of thinking about this world don't know what to do with the crucified Jesus. The cross confounds all of our normal ways of thinking about life and the world and God. It doesn't fit any of our paradigms. So for instance, traditional religion says, hey, if you're a good person, if you obey all the rules, then God will bless you with a good life. No suffering for you. Or many spiritual but not religious approaches to life say, look, if you practice meditation, if you do mindfulness, then you will escape suffering and be happy. Secular approaches to life say, look, if we work really hard, then we can conquer the problems of suffering and death through science and medicine and technology. Only the gospel says, yes, suffering is a problem. And Jesus came to deal with that problem. But the way he does it is not through worldly triumph and success. God's love and power do not come into this world through triumph, success, victory. It comes into the world through the cross of Jesus. And when you become a Christian, your life is now shaped by the cross. This is not a promise of worldly success and triumph and victory all the time. It's a promise that when you go through suffering and defeat in life, you can know that God is at work in your life. But the second way that this promise is um, counterintuitive and countercultural is because this promise from Paul is saying that true contentment doesn't mean self-sufficiency. It means Christ-sufficiency. So for instance, when Paul says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. That word content was a very specific word in the ancient world. It was a word that was used by Stoic philosophers, and it basically meant self-sufficient. Paul is taking their word, and he's standing it on its head. He's subverting the narrative of self-sufficiency and saying real contentment is Christ's sufficiency. Think about this. Even though this was 2,000 years ago, do you see how relevant this is for our modern world? Because our world is filled with messages that say, look, not only do you have to escape suffering and be living a life of constant victory and triumph and success and overcoming all the time, not only that, but you have to do all of that in the strength and power of your own inner resources because you are enough. For instance, one of my favorite contemporary writers is a woman named Tara Isabella Burton. Uh, she's an expert on American spirituality and also Western culture in general. She just came out with a brand new book called Self-Made, and the subtitle is Creating Our Identities from Da Vinci to the Kardashians. In this book, she goes through the last 500 years and basically traces the history of, of self-creation, of identity creation, beginning with Renaissance artists and going all the way through people like Frederick Douglass, Andy Warhol, Kim Kardashian, and Donald Trump. It's a brilliant book, and at the very end, she has a great summary of where we're at as a culture. Here's what she says. Our lives are now predicated on the assumption that artful self-expression is not just a moral requirement. It is what we, as human beings, are for. We are creators of ourselves, of our lives, of the world around us. We take on the divine role of constructing and shaping reality. What we want and who we want to be has become the key to who we really are. Think about all the messages that come at us in our world on a daily basis. 
whether it's on billboards or magazine covers, whether it's on social media or TV, whether it's in songs or movies, everywhere we go, it's like the message is constantly telling us, not only must you become the self you were meant to be, you must define and create the self you were meant to be all by yourself. You must do it from scratch. Talk about pressure. Is it any wonder that our world is experiencing skyrocketing rates of anxiety, depression, loneliness, addiction, and suicide, especially among young people? Paul is saying that true contentment is not self-sufficiency, it's Christ-sufficiency. That means that the real strength and power of our lives is not our own inner resources because those are constantly failing us. That means that no matter how many self-help books we read, no matter how many YouTube videos we watch, no matter how many hours a day we meditate, we will never find true contentment until we stop relying on self and start relying on Christ. Are you looking for contentment today? Real contentment does not mean everything in life always goes our way. It means that even in the very worst circumstances of life, you have something that anchors you deep inside your soul, even when the storms are raging around you. And that something is Jesus and only Jesus. Now, what would it look like in our lives if we were to stop relying on self and start relying on Jesus? Well, that leads to our last point. Paul has showed us the need for contentment. How can we be empty but not fall into despair? How can we be full and not be crushed by disappointment? Paul has also showed us the secret of contentment. It's Jesus. But lastly, he shows us the fruit of contentment. Because here's the question. What would our lives look like if we were really growing in contentment? The whole letter of, of, to the Philippians is full of examples of this. But in this passage, Paul names one particular thing. Real contentment, he says, looks like generosity. So over and over again in this passage, we see that the Philippians themselves were practicing contentment by showing financial generosity to Paul. One of the main fruits of contentment is generosity. In fact, that makes sense when we think about it because one of the big reasons we're not generous is because we're so anxious about our own security. And so we cling to our resources. But the more Christ becomes the true inner resource of your life, the more we're able to sacrifice all of our material resources for the sake of others so that we're no longer relying on those things. We're relying on Jesus. And by the way, this does not mean, let me say this again, this does not mean that material resources are unimportant. Let's not over-spiritualize this. We're embodied creatures we're going to talk a lot more about that in the weeks to come. That means we need things like food and water and shelter and clothing. Paul is grateful to the Philippians because even though he's perfectly content in Jesus, it's still really good not to starve to death. In fact, one of the things that the earliest Christians were most famous for was the ways that they plowed their material resources into the world around them. For instance, uh, there was a Roman emperor named Julian. Here's a picture of him. Uh, Julian hated Christians. He also hated the fact that Christianity was exploding in the ancient world and that all these people were becoming Christians. But he also recognized that one of the big reasons that the church was growing so quickly was because that they were um, generous, radically sacrificially generous to all the poor in the ancient world. 
And so as a result, you know, he wanted to revive the old Roman pagan religions, but he realized they had a public relations challenge. So he wrote a letter to one of his pagan priests in which he basically said, hey, these Christians are putting us to shame. We've got to step up our game. In the letter, here's what he says. When the poor were neglected and overlooked by our pagan priests, the Christians observed this and devoted themselves to benevolence. They support not only their poor, but ours as well. Friends, here's the point. One of the main ways that we grow in contentment is by practicing generosity. One of the main ways we grow in contentment is by practicing not self-sufficiency, but Christ-sufficiency. Not depending on ourselves, but depending on Jesus. One of the main fruit of contentment is generosity. In fact, I love the way Paul puts it in this letter. He says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Think about this. Paul is, is rejoicing in the generosity of the Philippians. But why? It's because he had something to eat? No. He says, not that I seek the gift for myself, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. In other words, the reason that Paul rejoices in the Philippians' generosity is not because it was doing something for him, but because it was doing something for them. They were growing in contentment. They were growing in love, joy, and peace, and all the rest of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. In fact, we could summarize the whole message like this. God calls us to generosity not because he wants something for himself. It's because he wants something for you. God does not want your money as much as he wants to see you growing and flourishing in the image of Jesus. Because the more we give, the more generous we are, the more we become like Jesus, and the more we experience all the joy and contentment of Jesus. You know, before I was a pastor, I was a jazz musician, um, which is one of the reasons I love the movie Soul. But in the early 2000s, I was living in New York City. I was playing jazz, and like any other musician, I was just basically scraping by. Um, and yet, eventually, I sensed God calling me into ministry. And the interesting thing was, right before I was getting ready to leave New York and move here to St. Louis to come to seminary, my apartment building wanted to renovate the building and, and sell it to make lots of money. And as a result, they needed to get all of the tenants, including myself, out of the building. But in New York, you can't just kick people out of their apartment. New York rent control laws mean that they have to buy you out. So as a result of that, my apartment building paid me thousands of dollars to leave my apartment. Only in New York. The greatest city in the world. <laughs> but here's the thing. You know, I was a Christian, and I had questions about this because I didn't earn this money. It wasn't wages. And I was wondering, well, okay, this is a gift. Do I tithe on this money? Do I give some of this money? Because it was a lot of money, to me at least. And do I give some of this back to God? I had very genuine questions about all of this. But at the time, I had the very good fortune of being a member and on the worship staff at Redeemer Presbyterian Church, where Tim Keller was pastor. In fact, they just had a very lovely memorial service for him this past week. You can watch it online. But I was on staff, and because I didn't have a computer at home, um, I would sometimes go into the office, the church office in the evenings, and, and I would work there. And every once in a while, Tim would be there, and I would have a chance to chat with him. And I remember one night in particular, I was there working, and Tim was there, and I had an opportunity to ask him these questions I had about this money I was going to receive. 
And Tim Keller basically told me, look, it's all a gift anyway. Growing in, in generosity is one of the main ways that we grow in the image of Jesus. And then he said something I will never forget. He said, besides, giving is fun. Giving is fun. And I had the very strong impression when he said that, that this is somebody who was not just speaking theoretically. This was someone who was speaking from personal experience. Tim Keller was a generous man. Tim knew the, the joy and the contentment that comes from generosity. And friends, he wanted that for me. Dear ones, Jesus wants the same thing for all of us. And the way that happens is because on the cross, Jesus practiced the ultimate generosity. You know, in this letter, Paul tells the Philippians, he says, it was kind of you, literally it was beautiful of you, to share my trouble. This word trouble is a word that means affliction or oppression. Literally, it means to be pressed or crushed by something. You know, it's really encouraging when someone shares your trouble, isn't it? Even though you're still suffering, at least you're not suffering alone. On the cross, Jesus came to share our trouble. That means that when you're going through trouble and affliction and oppression, when you're being pressed and crushed, you can know that God is at work in your life, that you are not going through this alone. Friends, even if that was all Jesus was doing for us, that would be wonderful. But Jesus does so much more. Because on the cross, Jesus not only came to share our trouble, Jesus came to bear our trouble. On the cross, Jesus took all of our sins and he poured out his blood. Tim Keller used to say all the time that Jesus did not tithe his blood on the cross. He gave it all. On the cross, Jesus took all of our selfishness, all of our preoccupation with self, all of our anxieties, all of our shame and our guilt. He took all of that upon himself and he poured out his life for us. Jesus was crushed for our sins so that we could be content in his love. Are you looking for contentment today? Friends, do you know this kind of contentment, the contentment that can only be found in Jesus? If you're a Christian, one of the main ways that we grow in contentment is through practicing generosity. It's a way of practicing Christ's sufficiency, of practicing dependency on Jesus. And if you are here this morning or joining us online and maybe you're exploring faith, let me ask you or invite you to ask yourself this question, what am I relying on today? What am I really relying on today? And how's that working out for me? What would it be like for you to shift your reliance onto Jesus? At least give it a shot. You can always have your old anxious life back, but, but why not try what life is like in Jesus first? Friends, on the cross, Jesus was crushed by our sins so that we could be content in his love. Look at Jesus on the cross. Behold him pouring out his love and his life for you like that and know, experience, rejoice in the contentment that only comes through him. Would you pray with me? Abba, we praise you today for the joy and the contentment that can only come in Jesus. Lord, we thank you that you know that this world is full of suffering, failure, hardship, and defeat. And we thank you, we praise you today that, that you came to this world in order to deal with all of that. But we praise you also for the counterintuitive, counter 
cultural, mind-boggling, paradigm-breaking reality that the way you have dealt with all of that is not through what we would call triumph and victory. You dealt with it on the cross. And Lord, we praise you this morning for that. And we ask that the power of your cross would come more and more into our lives, that we would know the true contentment that comes from Christ's sufficiency, not self-sufficiency, and that you would help us to grow more in that contentment by practicing generosity, the generosity that you showed us on your cross, Lord Jesus. For we pray all of these things in your name. Amen.